Uh, guys, I'm going to just read a few quotes. You see if you know who wrote them or um, where they're located. You don't have to. You, if you know, that's fine. You just keep that to yourself, okay? Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Some of you will just finish these as I'm starting them because they're well and familiar. A little sleep, a little slumber. This is one I've quoted a lot. A little folding of the hands to rest. An excellent wife who can find. She's more precious than jewels or her worth is far above jewels. Or, or how about these? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's really encouraging, isn't it? How would that be for your life verse? Vanity of vanities. Uh, for everything there's a season, there's a time for every matter under heaven. If you're my age, you're hearing a song in the background. Yeah. Uh, better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. That's a somber one, isn't it? Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Or how about these? My beloved is mine and I am His. That's a good one. Or this, many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. A lot of you, most of you know where these come from. Uh, the author of these thoughts and a whole lot more was a poet, songwriter, philosopher, naturalist. Uh, he was a man of incredible means uh, who used his wealth to investigate life. Really sort of all its positive possibilities on one hand, but also its pitfalls as well. He started well and really lived an amazing life generally, but he finished very, very poorly indeed. This is the 32nd message in the Heroes and Villains series. And this morning we're looking at Solomon, David's son, and apart from Jesus Christ, the wisest man who's ever lived on this earth. And before we go forward, remember that the whole gist of the series is that we're looking for elements of Christ-likeness and specifically Christ-like faithfulness in the lives of the saints who've lived before us, whose lives are recorded in the Scripture. And we're not trying to drum up sort of a better, pure effort on our own, but as Christians, we understand that the life of Christ is in us and that God's work, God's great work in you and I as individuals, is the transformation from what we were in our fallen humanity to what God means us to be as full-grown children of God through Jesus and through His Spirit, through His Word and His truth. So we're trying to become our truer selves as we look at elements of the life of Christ and His faithfulness in these Old Testament saints. And when we look at the villains, we're seeing the kinds of things we want to avoid. And as we said at the beginning of the series, you'll see yourself in both. You'll see yourself in the villains. You'll see yourself in the heroes. You'll see some positive, some negative. But the, the, the end of all this is always that we are encouraging the life of Christ in us to become more fully formed in His image. Uh, let me give you some background on Solomon before we get into the text. So he's the son of David. Remember, David reigned from 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. in Hebron and then in Jerusalem. Solomon is the son of Bathsheba. And this is an encouragement to me. I hope it is to you as well. You know, your past sins don't have to define you. Our past failures don't have to define us. When God gave Bathsheba, this little boy, Solomon, the text tells us that it was in part to comfort her for the loss of her previous son who was born out of the adulterous relationship with David. That son died. And that's not the end of her story. Because her next son is Solomon. He's the tenth son of David. 
but he's going to become the king. And somewhat uniquely in the scriptural record, God himself nicknamed Solomon at his birth. And he calls him Jedediah, which means loved by God. That's pretty good. Your past, your sin, your failure and mine don't have to define you. And it certainly didn't Bathsheba or Solomon. His name, by the way, means peaceful. He's the tenth son of David. He's the third king of Israel. And like David, his father, he reigns 40 years from 970 to 930 B.C. His story, and this is on your study sheet, 1 Kings 1 through 11. A couple of chapters in 1 Chronicles and then 2 Chronicles 1 through 9. And this morning we'll look at some in Kings primarily and then some in Chronicles as well. By the way, too, the map on your left, that's the area that Solomon reigned over. No king in Israel's history reigned over more territory than Solomon. You remember the promise to Abraham was that Abraham's heirs would occupy the land of promises from the Euphrates River, which we often forget. Modern Israel is a fraction of what God promised to the Jewish nation, to Abraham's heirs. The Euphrates River down to the river of Egypt from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. And of course there they occupied far east of the Jordan River. The map on the right is a modern day map that puts ancient Israel in, in rough perspective of how big it would be today. Much, much bigger than the state of Israel is currently. Solomon's reign it was the golden age of Israel. It's not just the biggest territory that Israel ever has. It's the richest. They're at their most powerful. They're at the apex of the development of the nation occurs under Solomon's reign. And of course, a lot of that is because of David. But Solomon expands even more than David had ruled over before him. Uh, main points this morning that I hope we take away, Solomon's known for a number of things. Um, the women we'll get to at the end. I want to avoid that for now. On the positive side, Solomon valued God's wisdom. And we'll see that right, right off the bat in 1 Kings. Uh, Solomon was also committed to God's house. Uh, in the Hebrew, what we, the term that we use as temple, in the Hebrew it's just house. It's just God's house. Uh, Solomon valued, he was committed to God's house, the place God said he would cause his name to dwell. God's name, God's honor, God's place. He had this high, high esteem for God and God's worship. And then last, Solomon's sins in the later stages of his life Remind us that ultimately, nobody but Jesus can fulfill the promises to God. You know, in 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise to David that one of his sons would rule on his throne and would rule over an expanded kingdom forever. And Solomon follows David, and there's a temptation to say Solomon's the guy, and it's like, well, yes and no. Solomon's sort of this near taste of the ultimate glory that will be fulfilled in Jesus, who of course in the New Testament is identified as the son of David. So that's where we're going. If you've got your Bible, we're going to start in 1 Kings 3. 1 Kings 3, I'm going to read verses 5 through 12. And just to put this in perspective, Solomon is just newly ordained as the king. He's just starting things. And he's gone up to Gibeon to make sacrifices. If you remember, his dad, David, moved the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. That's where it's located. But the tabernacle and the altar are in Gibeon, north of Jerusalem. Chronicles tells us that. So Solomon has gone up there with Israel. He's offered all these sacrifices. And this is where we pick up. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Solomon said, 
And, and listen, before he answers, he frames his response based on where he sees himself in life and in God's program. Solomon says, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. Now, O Lord, or Yahweh, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I don't know how to go out or to come in. And briefly, he's not saying he's a junior, a tyke. He's saying he's youthful and he lacks the experience, the wisdom, the age, the gray hair, the whiskers, the knowledge to lead God's people like a shepherd. That Remember, shepherd would lead sheep in and out. Uh, he says, uh, Your servants in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So here's his answer. All that before he gets to asking God for the thing. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you we're not reading the verses but God goes on to say and because you didn't ask for something selfishly I'm going to give you all the stuff you didn't ask for isn't that good <laughs> I'm going to give you the wealth the success the fame the long life what you didn't ask for you get anyway so so when God shows up and says what do you want that's a that's a loaded question isn't it you, you, uh, it's like the genie, you know, you open and the lamp comes up. Man, I've got one wish or three or whatever it is. What would I ask for? And Solomon starts, and this is important, Solomon starts with a humility that was adequate to inform him that he lacked the wisdom adequate for the role God had called him to. So he understands, and that's the way he framed his answer. He says, uh, God, you, you're, you're God. I don't know if you notice, four times he says, I'm your servant. Three times he calls the people your people, and he says, They're the people that you've chosen. He frames his reference. He sees his life as David's son, as the king, the shepherd king over God's people. And so when God comes to him and says, What do you want? His first thought, what frames his response, is the time and the place God's placed him and the responsibilities he has. So, God says, what do you want? And before he answers, he's running through this litany of details about his life. And basically says, you know, you've been great to my dad. You fulfilled your promise. I'm his son. I'm sitting on his throne. And I've got more stuff to do than I know how to do. So his response is framed around where God has put him. Geographically, the responsibilities, the time, the promises he knows. God made to his, his father David. If, if God showed up to you in a dream tonight and said, what do you want? What would we say? 
What would we say? And just let that percolate for just a little bit. What would we say? And probably as important as that, what would frame our response? Now, um, we don't have to be super spiritual here this morning either. You know, I knew a gal many years ago, and I won't share what she asked, but she just felt like God said, what do you want? And she told God what she wanted. And guys, it had nothing to do with the temple or wisdom. It was something that for her was this very personal thing, and God did it for her. And it was just that between she and the Lord, she just felt like, yeah, you know that, Lord, if I could just, if you were going to do something for me, that's what it would be. And, and God did it for her. If we're laying in bed at night, and it's just the Lord and I, nobody else knows what our answer is, what do we ask for? Either because, because our response is framed by our own responsibilities or what's going on, or simply between the Lord and ourselves, it's like, Lord, you know, the thing I need is this. Or the thing that I really lack is that. What would it be? What would it be? And what would inform that answer? Solomon grasped the importance of having God's wisdom in order to live faithfully. And I want to walk through just a little a bit of this. Um, when you start the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs is a great place. And of course, Solomon authored it. So wisdom, literature, uh, Proverbs. Uh, Solomon wrote Psalm 72. We'll close out with that. Here after a little bit, he wrote the Song of Songs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. When he writes the book of Proverbs, it's 31 chapters long, as you know. But did, did you ever notice it? The, for the first nine chapters, he's just doing a sales job on his sons. For nine chapters, he's just trying to tell his sons, wisdom is so important that you want it. You should want it. And you should want it more than anything else you can imagine. God's kind of wisdom. So he starts Proverbs by saying, the things he's telling his sons, this was from a father to a son. And by the way, David had told Solomon, he said, you need wisdom, man. <laughs> and Solomon listened. I think that was in the back of his mind when God showed up. David had said, you need wisdom to lead God's people. And Solomon was aware of that. His father helped him key in on that. That's one of the things God calls dads, I think, especially to is to put those thoughts in our children's minds about what's really important, what's key, what's formative for us. But Solomon said you'll know wisdom. You'll have understanding. He says you'll get righteousness, justice, and equity from his wisdom, from the stuff he's put down from God. God's wisdom through Solomon gives us a sense of righteousness, justice, and equity. Those things are key and important to God. Prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. We say sometimes someone is simple. If we say a simple ton, that's more along the lines of the way the word would have been understood here. It means naive. And God doesn't want us to be naive. It means to be morally uninstructed. God wants us to have His wisdom. And Solomon got that. Not just because he was king, but because all of us, if we're ever going to honor God as we should, we have to have God's wisdom, not just to be successful in life, but to have a sense of who am I? What does God want? What does success in this life look like? And he said it starts, this is verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Elsewhere it'll say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But God says that if you want to live right, and Solomon got this, if you want to live well and right before God, it has to be in the fear, the reverence, and the awe of God Himself. God has to be our touchstone. 
And our wisdom has to be God's wisdom if we're going to live well and successfully as eternity counts success. Solomon understood that. Uh, Listen to some of the things that Solomon said God's wisdom will do for you. God's wisdom will give you the knowledge of God. You'll know God through godly wisdom. Uh, God's wisdom will guard you and protect you. It will give you long life and peace, favor and success with God and people, riches and honor, security, freedom from fear, confidence, life, health. It will enable you to enjoy a spouse, sex, family as God intended. God's wisdom will protect you from immoral, evil people. It'll give you understanding into how God's world works. And this is the thing, and you know this, I'm sure. Guys, all of us are operating on someone's view of wisdom. Everybody's operating on some version of wisdom. So your wisdom and mine, if we live a long life, we might just say we've had enough hard knocks that we know some things that we didn't start out knowing. Uh, We might say we have wisdom from the political world or the business world, or we have some form of wisdom that we can gain by the world. Solomon says, and God says, the only wisdom that's ultimately worth having that can inform a life rightly is God's wisdom. And Solomon valued God's wisdom. And it is the Christ-like faithfulness for us and in us to say, God, we want Your version of wisdom. We're not content with anything short of that. We want Your wisdom. We value Your wisdom. By the way, I wonder where we would find God's wisdom. Uh, Let me ask you some questions before we move on. Um, What responsibilities has God given me? What kind of specific wisdom might I need? What specific wisdom do I need to be faithful in the work God has given me? And you and I can do the same thing Solomon did. Lord, would you give me an undivided heart to do your things? And would you give me wisdom in this arena in which I'm responsible? But valuing wisdom, valuing God's wisdom, not wisdom broadly or generally, but valuing God's wisdom, that is Christ-like faithfulness. And Solomon had that in spades. And we should too. And of course, God's Word is the place to find God's wisdom, right? Also, remember James 1.5 says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. That's exactly what He did for Solomon, right? Solomon says, I need wisdom. God says, okay, here it is. Now, God has given us wisdom. If you ask God for wisdom, don't just assume there's a lightning bolt and it's there. He has loaded His Word with His wisdom if we're asking God for wisdom, we ought to be making use of the avenues He's given us to see His wisdom, which is the Scriptures first and primarily. Also talking to other godly Christians who are older than us and wiser than us. That would be appropriate too. But God will give us wisdom. We need to value it though. So, Solomon, this paradigm of Jesus in this desire to have God's wisdom so that he could fulfill God's role for his life. The second thing and the big thing, second big thing that Solomon's name is associated with and which he displays Christ-like faithfulness is this dedication to God's house. Uh, you'll see different images online of uh, Solomon's temple. We call it Solomon's temple because he he built it. You remember David his father had given him the plans and had given him a lot of the material as well, but the material that David gave was more than doubled in the production of the temple. This was a massive, massive construction site. Solomon's temple, we still call the first temple Solomon's temple today. 
It was a wonder of the ancient world. It was the biggest sacred space in the ancient world. The, the Temple Mount was. The dimensions on this, uh, not counting the side areas you can see there, that which were storage areas. It was 90 feet long. It was 30 feet wide. The, the holy place and then the Holy of Holies. Uh, the front facade was taller than the rest, but it was at least 45 feet tall. And there's some... There's some ambiguity about how tall the front facade was because of the, the manuscripts. Uh, the Holy of Holies was 30, was a perfect cube, 30 by 30 by 30. The only thing in it was the Ark of the Covenant, that gold-covered box which had the Law of Moses inside of it, and then the cherubim above that. Um, this took, Solomon conscripted 150,000 laborers who were just foreigners living in Israel there were over 150,000 people working for seven years to build this edifice. And all the stones were carved off-site. There was no stonework done on-site other than the stones being put in place. Once the stonework was up, they installed wood paneling throughout the holy place, the biggest chamber, and then the Holy of Holies, the same thing. That woodwork was carved intricately with cherubim, angelic images, with trees, with fruit. And then it was all overlaid with gold as well. You remember it was tons and tons of gold that went into the building of this temple. So that if you'd walked in, it, it's simply a golden chamber all around you. Uh, Solomon's temple, the, the ashlers, the, the foundation stones that were laid under his aegis, under his leadership, guys, those are still the stones that people walk by today. So if you stand today at what's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. That's the edifice that was built during Solomon's time. And in fact, this doesn't show it, and depending on the maps you look at, this has nothing to do with the moral instruction of the plane. I've got books on this and videos and everything else. Anyway, there was a valley on the west side of the Temple Mount. And to make the Temple Mount big enough and flat enough for this temple and all the area that would go around it, they had to build up a, from a valley floor, they built up with these huge ashlar stones, immense stones. And then they filled it all in to create a false uh, level place on top. So when you see people, and you'll see this online, you'll see people underground looking at the foundation stones for Solomon's temple for that wall area. They're 90 feet below ground because that was the valley floor. And they had to build all that up to get a flat plain big enough for the temple to rest on. That's still there today. But you think of the extravagance of the time, the labor, the money that went into this seven years long, working night and day. This was an, an incredible, incredible job. And, and Solomon was in it. He was committed to it because he said he valued God and God's name. Now listen Listen to these texts out of 2 Chronicles. Uh, these give a little bit more than Kings does on when the temple was dedicated. So listen to these elements. This is 2 Chronicles. I'm pulling sections out of chapters 5, 6, and 7. But the temple had been finished. Seven years of labor. Everything's done. They took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it inside the Holy of Holies. And this is what happens. When the priest came out of the holy place, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. This would be the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant. But God's presence is so manifest once they've put the Ark in the Holy of Holies, they can't stand there. They flee. They run out because of God's holy presence. 
in chapter 6, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. He spread out his hands. He knelt on his knees in the presence of the assembly of Israel. He's acknowledging. He's the king of Israel, but he's kneeling before his king, the God that has just filled the temple. Knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly. He spread out his hands towards heaven and he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant, showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Going down to verse 18, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord. And li listen to the repetition in Solomon's prayer and his request. He says, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be opened day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. You get, you get it. Solomon's saying, when we come to you here where you've set your name, where your presence can be found on earth, Lord, would you be open to what we have, to our needs and to our need for forgiveness? Would you listen? Would you hear us when we pray? And when you go down through his prayer, this, these are the things he covers. When an individual or the nation sins, they come to the temple, they confess their sins, the sacrifice is offered in God's presence, remember, and they're forgiven. Or he says, when Israel's armies are defeated, they lack rain, there's famine, plague, pestilence, invading armies. Israel would come here, they would confess their sins, they would offer sacrifice, and they would be forgiven and restored. Solomon's temple was the place where God promised to meet by the way, both Jews and Gentiles. If you read these texts, it's not just Jews. Gentiles would find God at the Jewish temple. Now this is interesting. I tend to think of the worship that would be offered. You know, the, the morning and the evening sacrifices, etc. But when Solomon dedicates it, he said, this is the place where God will hear you. And remember that before your petition would go forward, there would be a sacrifice made. Your sin had to be covered. So an animal would be slain offered on the altar, and then you'd be received by God. Isn't that instructive? You know, today, how do we come before God? There's no temple. We'll get to this in just a minute. But the way to God is open, right? And you remember when Jesus dies on the cross and says it is finished? can't remember which of the Gospels. The synoptics record that the veil before the holy place was torn. Amen. And it was God basically saying there's no division anymore. There's no Levitical priesthood. There's no sacrifices needed. There's no barrier between you and me. The way is open because Jesus has adequately covered our sins. And so that's, that's a precursor to that. We offer the sacrifices. We petition God. And God hears our prayers. At this place, He's called His name. Now guys, if you saw an edifice like this, if you said, hey, would you like to contribute? Would you like to help build Solomon's temple? You and I would be like, oh, it's grand. It's going to be great. You know, of course. You know, God's building a temple today, isn't He? God's building project has not ended. But it looks very, looks very, very different, doesn't it? Oh, by the way, let me finish this. Sorry. Let me read 2 Chronicles 7. So all this stuff happens. Solomon prays. But listen to this, 2 Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple 
The priests couldn't enter because of the Lord's glory. The people of Israel saw the fire come down. They bowed with their faces to the ground and they said, He's good. His steadfast love endures forever. They just fell out. You know, the priests couldn't go in and the people, they just fell out. They're like, oh my goodness, you're God. We're not. You're good. We're glad. You're, you're glorious and your mercy and love, they last forever. And that's why we're here. Guys, in Acts 2... You remember Jesus told His disciples after His resurrection and He goes back to heaven He says, wait in Jerusalem, you're going to get power. And you'll know when it happens. You remember on Pentecost Sunday, the disciples are up in that upper room and, and what happens? Fire from heaven comes down on them, doesn't it? Just like Solomon's temple. And instead of this a glowing presence, there's a wind which is the Holy Spirit's presence in their midst. It's exactly the same thing. There's fire and there's the presence, direct presence of God. And what happens to them? The priests fled out of the temple and they fall down and they declare God's goodness. And what happened to those first disciples? They were driven out of the upper room outside and what did they do? They declared God's goodness and grace in Christ. It's the same thing. Uh, God's building a temple today. And it's the church. And you look at passages like 1 Peter 2.5, you are living stones, you're built up a spiritual house. That's the temple. 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you're God's temple? God's Spirit dwells in you. God's temple is holy. You are the temple. 1 Timothy 3 says the same thing. Guys, this is the deal. Solomon's not building a physical structure today, but God is building the church. And that's what Jesus said, I will build my church that's his building program today and part of the problem with this is again if you were aware of solomon's temple and how grand it would be and glorious and someone said do you want to participate in this and you'd say well yeah great but when someone tells you that god's temple is building today is is people that you're sitting next to <laughs> or you came to church with it feels less grand <laughs> doesn't it it's like is this it you know, maybe, maybe I say, I'm not sure I want to contribute. But this is the deal. Uh, think of this. Uh, all of us share God's image because of His humanity. W right? The image of God is in our humanity. Uh, that's true of everyone that's ever lived. But for Christians, every individual Christian is a temple of the living God. R right? Romans 8 says, if, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. Every, every born-again believer is a temple of the living God. And collectively, when we get together to meet around Christ, giving worship to the Father, collectively we are inhabited by the Spirit of the living God. No different than Solomon's temple. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the glory of God, not like Solomon's temple, it's in our clay jars, it's in our earthen vessels, and it does not look impressive on the outside. But the fact is, Jesus is building His church. God is building His temple. And you're it. We're it. Let me just ask you something. Guys, I think the church of Jesus Christ today is in pretty lousy shape. You remember what happens over the years to Solomon's temple? Do you remember what they do? They baptize false practices. They bring in false altars. They bring in idols. They worship God as it pleases them. Do you think that's going on in the church today? I sure do. Just read the news. And, and think of this too. You know, some people, um, there's this lukewarmness 
You know, in Revelation 3, when uh, Jesus talks to the church at Laodicea, it's kind of like the worst of the worst. He says, you guys, you're not hot and you're not cold. You know, a hot cup of coffee or a cold, refreshing drink, man, that's great. He says, nope, you're just lukewarm. You're so lukewarm, I just want to spit you out. You know, it's, it's, being lukewarm is the worst thing we can be to, towards God and God's things. But there's, I think there's a general spirit of lukewarmness towards God's temple today, which is the church. And you can just ask yourself, am I invested like Solomon was in building God's house? And God's house today, it means things like, do I serve other Christians? They are a temple of the living God. Do I serve the local church? It's the temple of the living God. It's the only game in town. Do I serve? Do I use my spiritual gifts? Do I know? Think of Solomon again. Solomon, what do you want? Okay, well, this is the deal. This is my place. This is my role. This is what I need to do. God, this is what I need from you to fulfill my role. Are we bringing that mindset to our investment in the church? Lord, this is how I see you've placed me. This is what it takes for me to successfully participate in the building program you're up to today. You know, C.S. Lewis said, you've never met a mere mortal. Basically, he said, you know, if you see a redeemed person as they'll be in eternity, they'll be so glorious you'd want to bow down and worship. But if you saw someone who's ultimately under the judgment of God, they'd be so hideous you'd just cringe. Well, guys, you've never met a mere Christian. And you've never been in a mere church because the Spirit of God lives in us. We are individually and we are collectively the temple of the living God. And we should be enthusiastic and dedicated to investing in the temple, the house of God that God's making today. Filled with the Spirit, filled with the knowledge of God, going out when we've come together and we've worshipped like those priests going out or those first disciples going out to tell others what God has done for us in Christ. Evangelism. Talking to others about Christ. Same thing. There's one building program today. It's the church. What, what does our investment, do we value God's temple today the way Solomon valued it? I hope we do. Uh, let, me, uh, let, me, let me, I'm closing, Kent. I'm winding down. It's not a joke. I really am. This is my last of three points. Sorry. <laughs> so on one hand, in Solomon's glory and wisdom and building, you've got these great foretastes of what God's going to do ultimately in Christ, right? That Solomon reigns. Well, we'll cover these points in a minute. But, but on the positive side, Solomon looks like Jesus. We're supposed to see Jesus through the lens of Solomon in what he loved and what he did. The downside, though, we see elements in Solomon's life we want to make sure we avoid. And you see this in the last chapter of 1 Kings 11, the last chapter on Solomon's life. This is not recorded, by the way, in 2 Chronicles for different reasons. This is what we read. Uh, 1 Kings 11, 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So the daughter of Pharaoh is his first wife. And that's sort of a treaty deal. He loved Moabite. Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, don't enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Now Solomon knew the law, and he did exactly what God said don't do. 
Exactly. Listen to this phrase. Solomon clung to these in love. He clung to them. This isn't just physical. This is emotional. His wives were what his heart at the end of his life clung to. Remember, Jesus says we love God above all else. Well, in his waning days, that's not what happened to Solomon. He clung to his wives. It says he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart. Verse 3, verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. End of a lot. He did not finish well, guys. It's terrible. The guy who built the temple of God built altars and temples to Chemosh, to the false gods of the regions around Israel. It seems unbelievable. And you know, I'll bet it didn't happen overnight. You know, don't these things typically, they sort of creep up on us. We make one provision for sin and then another, and eventually we're doing things we would have never thought we were capable of. That's what happened to Solomon. It was idolatry. Idolatry, guys, it's not unique to Solomon. And almost anything can be an idol, as you're aware. Uh, a man or men could be an idol. Or a woman or women could be idols. Or food can be idols. Sex, drugs, status, success. You name it. This is one of the things you can do. I think that's just a helpful observation for our own souls or mind. If I say to myself, you know, I'm really not enthusiastic about gaining God's wisdom like Solomon was. Or, you know, I realize I am a bit lukewarm about God's building program in the church. The, the next question that would be good to ask is, what has my heart? What am I clinging to? What has displaced the life of Christ in me so that I'm hungering for something less? An idol is always less and it always displaces God in our heart. You don't have to marry 700 gals. You, you can, we can make idols out of the imaginations in our mind. It can be anything. But if I find that my heart is not keen after God, God's wisdom, God's house, God's things, if I'm not putting God in His things first, I probably usurped God and God's place with something lesser. I've probably made an idol out of some lesser thing. Not necessarily bad in and of itself, but something that's been raised up to a standard that's not what God wants. So, Solomon reminds us on one hand, in his glory, better days are coming. King Jesus is coming. He'll reign over the world. That's good. Solomon reminds us in the negative, we've got to avoid idols. In fact, think of uh, is it 1 John or is it 2 John? Chil little children avoid idols. It's like the last thing he says. That seems weird, but there's reason for that. Here's a short comparison. This is not on your study sheet. Solomon, son of David, just like Jesus. Solomon reigned 40 years. Jesus reigns forever. By the way, millennial reign, a thousand years, Scripture talks about before a new heaven and new earth. Solomon reigned over the promised land. Jesus reigns over the earth and then eventually the new heaven and new earth. Solomon, the wisest man on earth. Jesus embodies all that can be called wisdom. Solomon built the temple which was later destroyed, 586 B.C., just short of 400 years. Jesus builds the church, which of course lasts forever. Solomon was the human author of wisdom books. Jesus is the divine author of all God's Word. Solomon loved many women. This is interesting. I, I like this one because 
Jesus singularly loves His bride, the church. That's you and me. His love is concentrated, if you will, on His bride, the church. It's not dispersed abroad. Uh, Solomon finished life poorly. Of course, Jesus lives forever in righteousness. And Solomon was a signpost to God. Jesus, of course, is God incarnate. So whether you're looking at Solomon in his glory or in his sin, he's a lens to point us to Christ. And with that, I really am done. And if you would stand, that'd be good. And let's read from Psalm 72 together as the worship team comes up. This is the psalm that Solomon wrote. And I've, I've uh, parsed this out so that it's most appropriate as we think of Solomon pointing to Christ. So if you would read with me. Give the King your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal Son. May He have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May all kings fall down before Him. All nations serve Him. May His name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in Him. All nations call Him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen.